Bonjour et bienvenue dans le podcast Parole d'Histoire. Welcome to Parole d'Histoire, weekly historical podcast. For Omar Bartov's interview in English, jump to the 12 minute mark of this episode. Vous l'aurez compris, l'émission d'aujourd'hui est un peu particulière. J'ai eu la chance et l'honneur de discuter avec le grand historien du nazisme et de la Shoah, Omer Bartov, pour son livre tout juste paru en français, Anatomie d'un génocide, vie et mort dans une ville nommée Bouchach, traduit par Marc-Olivier Berrer aux éditions de plein jour. Une interview en anglais, mais où les questions sont accompagnées de traductions pour que le plus de gens possible puissent suivre la discussion. C'est pourquoi j'ai aussi demandé à Tal Brutman de dire quelques mots de présentation en français, vous l'entendrez dans un instant. Toutes les références citées dans l'émission, des livres de Mère Bartov, d'autres travaux sont à retrouver sur le site parolesdhistoire.fr pour ce 175 e épisode du podcast. Retrouvez-nous également sur les réseaux sociaux, n'hésitez pas à vous abonner via iTunes, Deezer, Spotify et partout où vous écoutez vos podcasts. Merci, très bonne écoute et tout de suite Tal Brutman, suivi d'Omer Bartov. Pour parler d'Omer Bartov, je suis aujourd'hui avec Tal Brutman, bonjour. Bonjour. Tal, on a déjà eu l'occasion de discuter ensemble dans ce podcast. Je rappelle que vous êtes historien de la Shoah. Vous avez notamment coécrit avec Christophe Ktaricon les 100 mots de la Shoah aux éditions PUF dans la collection Que sais-je. Vous venez également de publier un livre sur le travail photographique et la photographie de la Shoah publié en allemand, peut-être un jour en traduction française Normalement, ça devrait intervenir d'ici un an, oui. Bon, bah ça, c'est une très, très bonne nouvelle. Et, et on va parler ensemble aujourd'hui. Vous avez accepté, on vous en remercie, de préfacer l'émission d'aujourd'hui, donc l'entretien avec Omer Bartoff pour euh, notamment les auditrices et les auditeurs du podcast qui euh, ne sont pas anglophones, qui euh, pourront euh, écouter l'entretien, mais euh, peut-être qu'il faut leur donner quelques clés de lecture en disant d'abord pourquoi Omer Bartoff est à vos yeux, à nos yeux, un historien important euh, de la Shoah et de la Deuxième Guerre mondiale euh, En fait, il euh, y a un immense paradoxe quand on est en France, c'est que Omer Bartoff est très très peu connu. Il n'y a eu qu'un seul de ses ouvrages qui a été publié jusqu'à présent en français il y a plus de 20 ans maintenant qui s'appelle L'Armée d'Hitler et pourtant c'est sans doute un des deux historiens majeurs de sa génération avec Christopher Browning sur l'histoire de la Shoah, puisque Bartov s'est intéressé dans un premier temps à l'histoire et à l'implication de la Wehrmacht dans le génocide et dans les violences sur le front de l'Est. Et ses travaux ont constitué un point tournant à cet égard, puisque au moment où il s'y est attaqué, c'était la période où la Wehrmacht était encore considérée, particulièrement en Allemagne, mais pas que, comme ayant incarné une Allemagne propre qui se serait contentée de combattre sans être impliquée dans les violences de, du régime nazi. Il y avait les mauvais SS et finalement les bons Allemands de la Wehrmacht, de l'armée ordinaire en gros. C'est comme ça qu'on voyait les choses Exactement, il y avait les méchants nazis et, et les SS qui en étaient le bras armé d'un côté, et de l'autre côté une incarnation d'un peuple allemand avec son armée, la Wehrmacht, et qui s'inscrivait dans une histoire longue avec la Prusse, etc., qui se serait contenté de combattre sans jouer aucun rôle dans les violences, à quelque niveau que ce soit, autant contre les populations civiles d'une façon générale, ou dans le génocide des juifs. Et l'un des apports majeurs des travaux de Bartov a été de déconstruire toute une construction largement politique et héritée de la guerre froide et de la reconstruction allemande pour montrer à quel point l'armée allemande avait joué un rôle essentiel dans ces violences. Alors ça, c'est donc le livre « Hitler's Army, l'armée d'Hitler », un livre important aussi en raison des clés de lecture conceptuelles qui donnent des violences à l'Est et de l'articulation entre idéologie et violence. Et c'était une clé de lecture tout à fait novatrice au moment où c'est publié. Exactement, oui. Parce qu'il montrait justement que l'armée en soi n'était pas un isolat dans une société contrôlée par, par le régime nazi, mais qu'au contraire, il y avait une circulation des idées, mais aussi une forme de 
de justification a posteriori des violences avec l'intégration d'un élément fondamental et qu'on retrouve notamment dans l'ouvrage consacré à Bouchach qui vient de sortir en France, qui est la dimension du judéo-bolchevisme qui a été aussi bien utilisée par le régime nazi que par les antisémites en Europe de l'Est et qui font des juifs l'acteur principal de la diffusion du communisme à travers l'Europe et le monde. La carrière de Mabartov, elle s'est partagée entre Israël, où il est né, où il a travaillé, entre les États-Unis, où il enseigne aujourd'hui à l'université Brown, l'Allemagne et les pays de l'Est, évidemment, qui sont un terrain de recherche, en particulier la Galicie, donc le lieu où se trouve Bouchach, dont on va parler avec lui tout à l'heure. Donc c'est aussi quelqu'un qui reflète cette géographie de la recherche spécifique à ce champ d'études. D'une certaine façon, il en est une des incarnations, mais comme par exemple Shaul Friedlander, dont la vie et les pérégrinations reflètent aussi euh, cette histoire, Bartov en fait incarne à la fois cette histoire-là, puisque son étude porte sur, sur la ville dont est originaire sa famille maternelle, et en même temps tout son parcours et ses pérégrinations universitaires, puisqu'il, comme vous venez de, de le dire, il enseigne aux États-Unis, mais il est aussi passé... Euh, par l'Angleterre, il a grandi en Israël, et puis il y a différents aspects dans, dans ses travaux qui montrent qu'il a un éventail très varié, parce qu'il s'intéresse aussi au cinéma et, et à l'image du juif et, et, et à l'antisémitisme dans le cinéma, donc c'est pas un auteur qui est focalisé sur un seul sujet, il a une palette très large, et en plus, et là je pense que vous, vous l'évoquerez avec lui, mais quand on, on lit anatomie d'un génocide, on voit à quel point rentre en ligne de compte tout un ensemble d'éléments et l'un des apports essentiels à mon sens de ce livre, c'est la manière dont il ausculte l'histoire culturelle, notamment à travers des questions comme l'éducation et l'implication des différentes communautés, nations ou ethnies, tout dépend comment on les qualifie, mais ça reflète la nécessité d'avoir une vision très large, y compris pour faire de la micro-histoire en fait. Alors justement, peut-être dernier mot de cette préface, entre guillemets, c'est ce dernier livre, Anatomie d'un génocide, Vie et mort dans une ville nommée Bouchach, paru en anglais en 2018, vous avez lu la version originale, vous venez d'en dire certains apports, mais en quoi est-ce qu'on peut dire que c'est un livre marquant dans l'historiographie de la Shoah aujourd'hui Alors, il est marquant à plus d'un titre, d'abord parce que Omer Bartov a l'idée de réinscrire ça dans une histoire longue qui permet d'éclairer énormément de choses, à la fois une histoire longue en ce qui concerne les populations de Bouchach, à savoir les trois acteurs essentiels de cette histoire, à la fois acteurs et victimes, à savoir les Polonais, les Juifs, les Ruthènes, ou qui vont devenir ensuite les Ukrainiens. Et donc ça, il en dresse l'histoire, il l'analyse sur, sur quasiment plus de deux siècles, d'une part, et d'autre part, il analyse aussi sous l'angle d'une histoire longue les violences qui commencent essentiellement avec la Première Guerre mondiale et qui ne s'achèvent qu'au sortir de la Seconde Guerre mondiale. Et à cet égard, son analyse, qui en plus est très originale, parce que, je l'ai déjà dit, mais il faut le souligner, elle s'intéresse énormément à l'histoire culturelle, entendue au sens de l'interaction de ces différentes populations et de la manière dont elles existent et coexistent et agissent et interagissent, il permet de montrer que le paroxysme que constituent les violences de la Seconde Guerre mondiale ne sort pas de nulle part et s'inscrit dans une histoire longue, euh, à la fois sur une moyenne et sur une plus longue durée. Donc il y a déjà cette dimension-là. L'autre dimension qui ressort quand on, on lit cet ouvrage, c'est que contrairement aux histoires faites par le haut, qui sont évidemment très importantes, là on a une histoire qui est faite par le bas et qui montre comment est-ce que les violences de la Seconde Guerre mondiale s'articulent autour de tout un ensemble d'enjeux 
qui sont à la fois des enjeux nationaux, mais aussi de questions sociales, et que les acteurs qui vont jouer un rôle dans les violences, alors d'une part, il y a ce, on dirait, ce face-à-face, on pourrait quasiment appeler un, un Mexican stand-off, euh, où il y a les Juifs, les Polonais, les Ukrainiens qui sont vis-à-vis, mais avec toujours des acteurs extérieurs, l'État polonais, euh, les nationalistes ukrainiens, l'Empire tsariste, l'Empire austro-hongrois, euh, l'URSS et évidemment le Troisième Reich. Et tout ça fait qu'on est un bal permanent en termes de violence et de velléité de part et d'autre avec au centre de ces violences les Juifs qui sont rejetés par euh, à peu près tout le monde tout au long de l'histoire. Alors c'est important aussi de, de décrire ce processus de recherche parce que ça propose finalement aussi un, un contre-modèle à, à une autre approche de l'histoire qui a eu beaucoup de succès en France, justement c'est assez paradoxal par rapport à Bartov qui est moins traduit, c'est Timothy Snyder dont le livre « Les terres de sang » a reçu un, un très fort accueil et été traduit avec beaucoup de, de fanfares en France, alors que c'est un travail qui est critiquable par beaucoup d'aspects. Omer Bartov lui-même, il est revenu dans une note critique extrêmement virulente sur le travail de Snyder, en montrant que, finalement, commencer l'histoire dans les années 30, et puis réduire les terres de sang au lieu de la confrontation Hitler-Staline, ça tendait peut-être à simplifier certains processus. Euh, vous avez totalement raison, et le succès de Bloodlands de, de Snyder a été mondial, donc ce n'est pas uniquement propre à la France, mais ce qui est intéressant, c'est que les spécialistes de chaque champ qui rentrent dans, dans l'ouvrage de, de Snyder ont été très critiques. Il s'agit des spécialistes d'histoire slave, des spécialistes d'histoire allemande ou des spécialistes de la Shoah et plus largement euh, du nazisme. Et l'une des critiques les plus... Euh, acerbes à ce sujet a été un compte-rendu réalisé par Omer Bartov et qui montre qu'il y a énormément d'angles morts, de problèmes qui s'inscrivent à la fois en termes d'analyse mais aussi d'angles morts et justement cette idée que tout interviendrait avec Hitler et Staline et que la violence en fait quasiment tomberait du ciel en ignorant par exemple l'immense vague de pogroms que va connaître l'Empire russe au moment de son effondrement, effondrement mais qui n'est qu'un exemple parmi d'autres des lacunes de l'analyse de Snyder. Merci encore Tal Brutman pour tous ces éclairages. On espère vous retrouver bientôt au micro de ce podcast. Merci à vous et avec grand plaisir. First of all, thank you Professor Bartov, you are a distinguished professor of history at Brown University. Thank you for this interview. Thank you for having me. La première question de l'entretien porte sur la localisation de la ville de Bukchach, étudiée dans le livre, aujourd'hui en Ukraine, et qui a varié dans l'histoire. In the pre-World War I period, it was in the Habsburg Empire, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And before 1772, before the first partition of Poland, it was in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. So it changed hands many times. The fact that it changed hands plays a, a huge part in the history of the city and in the, the violence that unfurled during the World Wars. Uh, it's also linked to um, the history of a region called Galicia, And Galicia is a specific region because it's at the border, at the, at the intersection of many empires and many nationalities. Yes, so Galicia or Galician or Galicia was given that name 
uh, following the partition of Poland, the first partition of Poland in 1772, and it was created, uh, the Austrian Empire snatched that part of Poland, annexed it, and gave it a name, um, and it remained uh, under that name uh, formally until the end of World War I. Uh, but in fact, people who live there still think of themselves and people who left and were born there or are related somehow to that region still think of themselves as Galicians. Uh, it was during those centuries, easternmost, poorest and most populous uh, province of Austria. And it had a mix of Ukrainians, Poles and Jews living in there. It had the largest concentration of Jews uh, anywhere in the Austrian Empire. Um, so it's a, it's a very particular region that uh, created a kind of identity of its own over those centuries after the partition. Le livre comporte un aspect intime d'histoire familiale comme ceux de Daniel Mendelssohn, de Philip Sands. J'ai demandé à Omer Bartov la place de cette dimension dans son ouvrage. This is also the region uh, that your mother's family comes from. So your work is a work of scholarship, but it's also grounded in, in very intimate and personal history. And in a sense, this is part of a larger trend in Holocaust history because, uh, uh, for instance, Daniel Mendelssohn's book, The Lost, or um, uh, Philip Sohn's book, uh, East-West Street, uh, both are works that have uh, a scholarly uh, interest, but also uh, are grounded in personal history. Is this something that played a part in the way that you conceived the book? Yes, it did. Um, it's, you know, I'm, unlike, say, Daniel Mendelssohn, I'm, I'm an historian. Um, I... Uh, was trained in Britain in a very empirical history. So some decades ago, I would not have really thought of going in that direction. Uh, but when I started thinking about this book, uh, my initial thought was not biographical, autobiographical at all. My, my initial um, question to myself was, how does genocide occur on the local level? But in order to do that, I had to choose some place to investigate. And at some, on some unconscious level, I guess, I thought, why not Buchach, which was the town that my mother came from. And as you probably know, also the town that uh, Shmuel Yosef Agnon, the very famous uh, Hebrew language writer, came from and wrote a great deal about. So I thought it would be interesting to know something about that. But once I came to that thought, Uh, that created, as you indicate, another level of intimacy in thinking about genocide on the local level because it's connected me and my family to the place. Um, so when you write something that is local and you're trying to hear the voices of the people who are there and not only the sort of official documents, the fact that you yourself have links to it and th that I was able to talk with people who were from there and that my mother could tell me about her childhood there certainly created another level of intimacy for me as an historian. La question suivante porte sur la durée de la recherche pour un travail au long cours et qui implique une difficulté pour brasser des matériaux dans de nombreuses langues et dans de nombreuses archives. Can you talk a little bit about the process of research? This book was years in the making, obviously with documents in many different countries and languages, in Russian and Polish, Ukrainian, German, probably Hebrew. So what, what challenges did this uh, mosaic of languages, of uh, testimonies, of archives, uh, what, what problems or what influences did, you, did it have on the writing of the book? 
Yeah, so so the book uh, has documents of different kinds from nine countries in nine languages, uh, and that was a challenge. Um, first of all, linguistic, uh, because I had to retrain myself. I had to learn more languages. Uh, also, uh, going to so many archives was quite a challenge. Uh, learning a new historiography. I was originally trained as a German historian, so I had to learn East European history, Jewish history, history especially in Eastern Europe. And, you know, initially when I started um, thinking about this book, I thought, how many documents can I find for one little town? You know, there were at most 15,000 people in this Buchach. Um So I thought it would take me a year or two, and it took 20 and the reason was that I built this huge archive, um, which was this sort of story, the internal story and the personal story, or I'd say the first person history of that town. Um, so it was a huge challenge just to, first of all, learn all those things, collect all those documents, and then to try to integrate them into a tellable history. Uh, so some drafts of this book were huge. Um, I had to first write a very long book and then gradually shrink it into something that would be readable. Uh, for me, it was very interesting because it kept me on my toes. Um, I didn't want to keep doing what I was doing in the past, but it did take a long time both to research and to think it through. If I'm not mistaken, you have, uh, since the publication of the book in 2018 in English, uh, you've put forth a new book with more testimonies on Bouchard. Is, is this some material that you have unearthed since or that had been uh, uh, cut short in the previous version of the book? Exactly. It's the second thing. So when I was uh, writing drafts of this book, I had to make some decisions, and I eventually made the decision that this book, Anatomy of a Genocide, was an anatomy of a genocide. That is, it was... The, the the circumstances leading towards the genocide and then a sort of zooming in on the reality of the, da the daily life of genocide. But in reading and researching this book, uh, vast amounts of other things came up and I had to take them out of this book. Um, and I thought, I really like those chapters. They just didn't fit into this book. And so last summer, just a few months ago, Uh, I spent the entire summer putting all of that together. The research had been done, and I'd written various drafts. And I wrote a very different book, which is not about genocide, but is about the borderlands of Europe. And I call it Tales from the Borderlands. Um, so it's really about how a certain borderland identity is created, and then where those people go and what becomes of them. Uh, so it's a very different book. Um, and... For me, it was, there was a certain pleasure in doing that because I could distance myself from the end. Um, and when you write history, you always have to beware of a kind of deterministic history that you know as an historian what will happen in the end, but the people you're writing about obviously do not. And in that book, I was not writing about what would happen at the end, but what happened before anybody knew about it. L'histoire racontée dans ce livre, l'histoire de Bookshakch entre les deux guerres et pendant la guerre, paraît linéaire avec une explosion inéluctable de la violence dans la Deuxième Guerre mondiale. D'où ma question, est-ce qu'il y a des moments de bifurcation après lesquels cette histoire aurait pu se dérouler autrement 
this uh, leads me exactly to the my next question, which is that in a sense, the the book Anatomy of a Genocide is very linear, and it shows a, a, since the First World War basically an ever deepening spiral of violence that will engulf Buchach and its inhabitants. And uh, do you think that there is a point in time that the story could have been different? Is there uh, is there an inflection point that could have uh, made the story of Bouchard go differently at one or other points in time? Yes, of course. I mean, it, th that's always the case in history. There's always points at which things could have gone one way or the other. And the fact that they went that way and not the other was not necessarily predetermined. So it's a combination of certain causes and coincidences. The most important things in the case of Buchach, and of course it's not only Buchach, it's the case of hundreds of towns throughout uh, Eastern Europe, throughout this uh, vast swath of territory of uh, Europe's borderlands, uh, is the rise of nationalism. Uh, so nationalism really arrives in these areas which are heavily multi-ethnic and multi-religious, and starts differentiating between people. And it, it triggers a struggle over rights, who belongs and who does not. And that, in these areas, in this, is in the second part of the 19th century. So that's a very important first sort of, um, I'd say, cause, distant cause. That does not mean that it had to end up in genocide, of course, but it was a necessary condition. The second is World War One, and people often... Uh, don't really think about World War I when they're talking about East European history, but World War I was crucial in the sense that it brought both a huge amount of violence to that area on an enormous scale, unprecedented scale, and much of it was nationalist and increasingly ethnic violence. And so it's not only the violence of the armies that come in, it's also the internal violence between the different groups, in this case, It's between Poles and Ukrainians, and often the Jews are targeted both by internal nationalist groups and by the occupying Russian army. So that's another very important point. I, 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 I mentioned two more that I think are very important. One is that this area, Galicia, becomes part of Poland, as I said, in the interwar period. Uh, and Poland sees itself as a nation state, but it's a nation state 40% of whose population are not ethnic Poles. And in Galicia, the majority of the population is Ukrainian, and a very large minority, more than 10%, are Jews. And the Ukrainians do not want to be ruled by the Poles, and the Poles very brutally suppress any manifestation of Ukrainian nationalism. So that creates an enormous amount of, of simmering tension. And the last thing, which is really important for that area, and the people also often forget, it's rarely mentioned, say, Russian history, uh, is that between 1939 and 1941, this area comes under Soviet rule. That's part of the agreement between uh, Ribbentrop and Molotov that really facilitates the, the beginning of World War II. And the Soviets deport large numbers of uh, national groups and create but in a kind of system of divide and rule, they, they, they uh, enhance the tensions between the three main ethnic groups in that area. That translates into an enormous explosion of violence the moment the Germans walk in. So all of these uh, elements didn't have to happen. They did. Uh, each of them could have happened differently, but put together, 
they did create a kind of mix that made it more or less inevitable at the end. And of course, the final thing is that the Germans came into that area with a clear intention to murder the Jews. And without that German intention, there would have been anti-Jewish violence, but there wouldn't have been this kind of very organized genocidal urge. Cette idée que la Première Guerre mondiale constitue un tournant pour l'Europe de l'Est, du Sud-Est, qui radicalise les antagonismes nationaux, Omer Bartov l'a développé dans un projet collectif dirigé avec Eric White, Shatter Zone of Empires, la zone d'effondrement des empires. Il en explique les logiques. To come back for a moment to the, the First World War as a watershed, it's something that you've pointed to in a previous work, which was really interesting to me, uh, uh, the, the project that you coordinated with Eric White's, the, the Shatter Zone of Empires project, because the case of Galicia can be linked to that of Anatolia, of Lithuania, of many places where uh, the First World War marks a watershed and breaks social norms, and people who until then had been living more or less peacefully coexisting, let's say, more or less peacefully, then will become designated as enemies. So this is part of a more general pattern of what happens when traditional territorial empires break down uh, at the onset of the First World War, and then uh, the social norms in general tend to break down. Can you perhaps uh, develop a little bit this point? Yeah, absolutely. So um, b before 1914, uh, the whole area of Eastern Europe, Southeastern Europe and going into the Ottoman Empire is dominated by four empires. Uh, the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and the German Empire. And all of them, to, to a slightly lesser extent, the German Empire, uh, are multi-ethnic, multi-religious empires. These empires are all coming under pressure from nationalism. Uh, these empires are not nationalist empires because that would go against their own interests. Uh, they would not be able to keep the different populations in them. So as long as these empires exist, uh, they try to negotiate these different uh, national groups uh, in a way that would allow them to stay on top of it. The war destroys those empires. Uh, now, Whether that was inevitable, as again is often said in retrospect, well, we, we, we can't really tell. But that is what happens. The Austrian Empire expires, and as a result of that, a large number of national states, such as Poland, as I mentioned, are created. And those states want to have a, they, they see themselves as nation states, and although they don't, they have large minorities in them, They, they do not really want to be tolerant of those minorities. They want to assert their own national identity. So the disappearance of these empires makes for a completely different world, uh, which is in large part the world that we live in now. There are those who say, you know, uh, President Wilson's 14 points was part of that, the, the right of self-determination, which was very much part of the Um, rhetoric that comes out of World War I uh, was in many ways the trigger for the next major conflict for World War II. Now, could they have remained uh, as such? Uh, there is a kind of nostalgia these days, you know, especially with the rise of nationalism again for these empires. That's hard to say. Um, probably not. Uh, but the way they they were destroyed by revolution, by war, and by ex extraordinary inter-ethnic violence 
really set the course of the at least the first half of the 20th century, including ethnic cleansing, genocide, population policies, and so forth. La question suivante porte de façon plus générale sur la manière dont la guerre fait s'effondrer les normes sociales et morales, ce qui était aussi l'un des aspects étudiés dans un des premiers livres de Merbartov, l'Armée d'Hitler. The First World War and the Second World War in your book are also shown to be, in more general terms, uh, breakers of social norms. And this is something that harkens back to your first, uh, one of your first works, uh, Hitler's Army, where you show that uh, restraints on behavior tend to break down in situations of war. And this is something that's very identifiable both here in the First and Second World War. In the case of Buchach, uh, the situation of war tends to break down uh, ordinary social practices and tends to uh, extreme behavior. Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I must say I've been thinking a lot about this uh, in the last couple of years. Um, as I was finishing the book, it came out in English in 2018. Uh, and subsequently, with all the events that we are seeing today, what to me was, was increasingly apparent, and that's not something that I thought of when I started doing writing this book or researching this book, Uh, was how fragile the social order that we depend on actually is, how easily it, it can be fractured, and what are the conditions that make that possible. Now, the conditions change, and you're right. When I wrote Hitler's Army, it had to do with the conduct of soldiers in war. And when I wrote about Buchach, I was writing about relations between people in one town, uh, But in both cases, certain circumstances and a certain kind of rhetoric, uh, it is a shattering of norms, brings about a, a, a fracture in the entire sense of solidarity between people, that you have a certain uh, respect for your neighbors, that you can maintain the dignity of other human beings that you encounter. Um, in the case of Buchach, Uh, what you find is that indeed this process that begins, I would say, in World War I, the first time the people in a town are exposed to violence against their own neighbors, they see people being dehumanized, they see that there's license for violence, that uh, begins a certain process where you can think of your own community as one in which there are certain groups, certain individuals, certain criteria of human beings that are different from you. If you sort of take it writ large, of course, you can say that that is the, the core, at the very, I'd say, the very root of what can end up as genocide. That is that you say, here is a group of people, they may be living in our midst, or they may be on our borders, but they're not like us. They have a different skin color or a different religion or they speak a different language and they have certain characteristics that are different from ours. And therefore, we are not going to give them the same respect that we give to our own people. That is a process that can end up, it doesn't always do so, but can end up in ethnic cleansing, in, in expulsion or in genocide. Dans l'entre-deux-guerres à Bouchach, on voit monter les nationalismes, ce qui pose un problème particulier pour les Juifs de Galicie, puisque contrairement aux Ukrainiens et aux Polonais, il leur est beaucoup plus difficile de revendiquer ce territoire. This process is really radicalizing during the, the 20s and the 30s in the interwar period. And you show that during this period, the, the three groups that compose Galicia um, are both in the same situation, but also in a very different situation, especially one of these three groups is not like the others, the Jews, 
uh, are one of these groups. In a sense, they're a national group, a national group as well as the Ukrainians and the Poles, but they're also not perceived by the Ukrainians and the Poles as having the same claim to the land, as being the same nation. They, they, they're not in a position to claim uh, the same sense of nationhood as the Poles and the Ukrainians, who both can appeal to larger uh, swaths of territory, larger nation-states or larger projects of nation-states. So this places the Jews in a very difficult position because they seem to be um, marginalized even more during the period. Yeah, you know, it's it, it, for me um, uh, studying this this period in these three groups was interesting in the sense that you see how three groups that had lived <clears throat> side by side with each other uh, for about four hundred years, not necessarily in harmony. This was not a pluralistic society, uh, not multicultural. All these terms are totally anachronistic for that period, but that's the reality that they knew. And they learned how to live next to each other and with a certain degree of respect and, 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 and a sense of social order. Um, the, the rise of nationalism is interesting in this case also because that is where Poles and Ukrainians start uh, a conflict between each other. And th that conflict in Galicia is a conflict that has to do with the type of nationalism that is created there. It's an ethno-territorial nationalism. Groups identify themselves as ethnic groups and as belonging to a territory. Uh, and the Poles say, this territory is ours because we came and civilized it. And the Ukrainians say, you came and colonized us and we are the indigenous population. So what's the place of the Jews in that? Well, initially, the Jews don't really want to play in that game at all. And a Jewish nationalism comes to that area only after Polish and Ukrainian nationalism. And in many ways, it's a response to it. And it takes up much of the same rhetoric. Uh, in, in Galicia, it ends up being mostly Zionism. And Zionism is, in fact, a, an ethno-territorial nationalism. Uh, and it has many of the attributes of Polish and Ukrainian nationalism with one difference, that the land that they are talking about is not the land in which they live. It's not Galicia, it's Eretz Israel, it's Palestine, the Holy Land, whatever you call it, right? Uh, so they are actually playing into the game, but they are, they are not competing over that land. The final interesting point is that although the tensions between Polish and Ukrainian nationalism increasingly rise, and as you know, they still exist today, um, there's one point on which both groups agree, and that's that the Jews have no room in whichever plan they have for their own future. They don't want them in a, in a Polish um, nation-state, although they end up having them reluctantly, and they don't want them in a Ukrainian nation-state, that doesn't, is not created because the Poles win in the war between Poles and Ukrainians after World War I. La question suivante porte sur le rôle des aspects économiques et sociaux, de la pauvreté de cette région dans l'entre-deux-guerres en particulier, dans les mécanismes de la violence, en lien avec le ressentiment éprouvé par les acteurs. During the same period, the same interwar period, there's a, uh, an important backdrop to the story that you tell. It's the economic hardship. And uh, your work is a work of uh, history of violence, of day-to-day uh, uh, -day interaction and autonomy. It's, in a sense, it's also a social history. How significant a factor do you consider it to be, uh, economic problems, social problems, and the progressive radicalization of the violence in Buchach? 
both in Buchach and I would say more generally in ethnic violence and in genocide, one of the most, and, and in political turmoil as we see these days, I would say that probably the most prominent sentiment is resentment. And resentment is usually, first of all, socioeconomic. Uh, people are resentful of those of their neighbors, uh, of those they know, those who live nearby, or those they know of, who do economically better than them. Um, and in an area like Buchat, which was, you know, Buchat is in Galicia, Galicia is a very poor province, uh, people who do slightly better, and Jews were in a slightly better economic condition uh, than particularly uh, than Ukrainians. The Ukrainians were mostly uh, the majority of the village population in the countryside. Uh, that population was extremely poor um, to, to a very high degree. I bring in the book some, some examples. There's a British uh, expedition that goes there and describes these conditions. Uh, the kind of economic resentment that is created there when you marry it to a new kind of nationalism, then you get a very explosive mix. So I would say that the, the sort of curious aspect of this is that there are very few people who are really rich. Uh, so most people are living in very, very difficult economic conditions. But that does not mean that there is a great deal of resentment because of precisely because of their poverty and the sense that some people are doing better than others. And in the dynamic of the genocide itself, you see that immediately being played out. So when, when a certain group is being removed, in this case the Jews, immediately people move into their property, take over their belongings. And the fear that they have is that they may lose it if anybody survives or if anybody comes back. So that is yet another engine of violence, even as the violence begins, because once you have the little property that you got from your neighbor who might have been killed down the street, you no longer want any members of that neighbor's family to come back. Uh, and that um, works its way also into a post-war history of memory. What do you wish to remember and what do you deny? Comme on l'a dit précédemment, la Seconde Guerre mondiale commence pour l'Est de la Pologne et pour la région de Bukchak, avec l'occupation soviétique de 1939 à 1941 en vertu du pacte Molotov-Ribbentrop, un moment important parce que les Juifs se retrouvent associés au régime communiste. To come to the Second World War, you said a little bit before that there is a very important moment that is sometimes overlooked, the moment of Soviet occupation between 1939 and 1941. And it's very significant here because uh, we come to understand that in the eyes of many Poles and Ukrainians, uh, Jews came to be associated with uh, the Soviet uh, takeover of the region. And so the uh, very familiar accusation of Judeo-Bolshevism was able to be uh, put forth. And so this played a part as well in the radicalization of violence. Yes, absolutely. It, it actually begins um, in um, with the Russian Revolution already, um, and with this area is shortly occupied by uh, Bolshevik forces. Uh, so there are already at the time accusations that uh, Jews are collaborating 
uh, with the Soviets or that there are communist Jews who are taking over. And it becomes much more prominent, of course, during uh, the Soviet occupation between 39 and 41. And that still remains part of a discourse. You still see it in Poland today, speak of the Judo-Komuna, of, of Judeo-Bolshevism. Now, it's interesting to try and understand what is this about. So, in the case of Buczacz, um, there, there was one communist cell in Buczacz, and that communist cell in Buczacz was mostly made up of working-class Jews. And it had maybe 20 members, and it was a very unsuccessful cell that was penetrated easily by the Polish police over and over again. It did not represent uh, the Jewish po- population by a long shot. These were just a few young, young people. But it was largely the main or the only uh, communist cell in Buczacz in the 1930s. And that is that gives you an example or illustrates a, a much larger dynamic. Uh, Jews in the 1930s in particular feel increasingly isolated, and they, they, they're not wanted where they are, and they are finding it increasingly difficult to leave. Uh, they can't, after 1936, it's very hard to go to Palestine, and uh, this is the time of the Great Depression, so it's very hard to go to any other country. And so some young Jews find that uh, communism would be the best future for them, because communism is, of course, against nations and against religions, the, the two main um, engines of separation between groups. But the majority of Jews are lower middle class. They have no love for communism whatsoever. Now, when the Soviets come in, there is, they are welcomed uh, to an extent both by Ukrainians and by Jews. And the reason that the Soviets are welcomed is that both Ukrainians and Jews have had it up to here with Polish rule. And they are not at all sorry to see Poland go. However, they soon discover that the Soviets are not going to be the solution to their problems. Uh, and both Jews and Ukrainians start turning against Soviet rule. And the Soviets do what they do best, and they start retaliating against that and deport them in large numbers, or imprison them, or shoot them, execute them. Uh, but there is another aspect to it, which is that both Poles and Ukrainians, when they talk about that period, even decades later, they speak only of the others as having collaborated with the Soviets and of themselves as having been the main victims of Soviet rule. The Poles see themselves as victims because the Soviets destroyed the Polish state and deported large numbers of Poles. The Ukrainians see themselves as victims of Soviet rule because eventually they could never have a Ukrainian um, um, national state under Soviet rule. The Jews have a slightly different memory, and that's something that is never raised in Ukrainian and Polish discussions. Jews were deported proportionately larger numbers by the Soviets than either Poles or Ukrainians. But um, for Jews who were deported, in retrospect, after Nazi rule, it turned out that it was a blessing rather than a curse. If you were deported by the Soviets, you had a chance, about 30% chance of dying. If you stayed behind, if the Soviets didn't deport you, and the Germans came, you had maybe at best a 10% chance of surviving, probably even less than that, probably 5%. So for Jews, that memory of the Soviet occupation is a different one. Uh, And it's in this kind of competition of memories where it's easier, I would say, 
supposing Ukrainians to blame the Jews and to see themselves as victims, and Jews can't quite see themselves as victims of the Soviets in comparison with what happened thereafter. And that appears in so many Jewish memoirs and testimonies saying the Soviets were bad, but not as bad as the Germans. Un aspect très frappant des pages consacrées au génocide commis par les Allemands, notamment dans le chapitre 5, est que son déroulement est presque quotidien avec des meurtres en pleine rue de façon quasi constante, presque anarchique, très loin de l'image parfois diffusée de la Shoah, d'un crime de bureau, d'une organisation industrielle, du meurtre de masse. This leads to the main chapter on the German uh, genocide, which is chapter 5 in your book, and it's, uh, it's quite a difficult read, even for somebody who's read a lot on these subjects. It's a very, very harrowing description. And it's also very interesting because some readers may have uh, misconceptions about the Holocaust and think of the Holocaust as uh, sort of uh, impersonal and bureaucratic process, especially if they've, they've read the uh, work by Raul Hilberg and uh, uh, they have had this idea of something which is very organized and bureaucratic. And in, in Butchach, uh, the way you describe it is something that is almost random. It's uh, sort of daily violence, face-to-face uh, -face violence with, of course, moments of uh, people rounded up and, and deported and uh, and uh, led to gas chambers, but also moments of random violence on the streets. And this is a, a very striking feature of what happens in Butchach and also many places in Eastern Europe. And it's also contrary to some interpretations of the Holocaust or some popular visions, let's say, of the Holocaust. Uh, how is it significant to uh, describe uh, this uh, almost daily violence during the German occupation? Well, you know, for me, this was really the, the main or the first question that I had when I started all this project in the 1990s. It was that in the 1990s, uh, there was uh, the Holocaust sort of came to be acknowledged as an important event in 20th century history. It took a long time for it to be recognized as such, but in the 80s, there was a historiography that grew, and in the 1990s, it became increasingly recognized. And as you know, in 2000, it sort of became also politically recognized and so forth. Um, but the, the view of the Holocaust was very much uh, of a case of industrial killing uh, and a genocide in which there was a a, a very rigid separation between the perpetrators and the victims. There was a system that you could take people from a nice neighborhood, uh, whether it was in Drancy, which not a nice neighborhood, but from Drancy or from, from Grunewald, and put them on trains, and then they go to the east, and their neighbors, where they came from, don't know what happened to them, and when they arrive in the east, they, they're very quickly turned into ashes in a kind of industrial process that no one is entirely responsible for. Right. And nobody sees it because it's, it's, it's hidden away in extermination camps, in forests and so forth. Um, and there was a big debate in Germany. Who knew about it because it was secret? Did the German people know? Um, and I, in the 1990s, you know, this was when, uh, communism end, ended and we were told now we'll have a, um, uh, it's the end of history and everything is going to be great. And right after that, there were two genocides. And these two genocides in Bosnia and in Rwanda were very intimate genocides. There were genocides where neighbors killed neighbors. And I was thinking about the extent to which this happened also in the Holocaust. And that was why I decided to do a sort of local study and to see what happened in one town. So when you see what happened in one town, and when you realize that that town was not just one town, there were hundreds of towns like that, throughout the region from Latvia and, and Lithuania all the way to the Balkans, you realize that on the local level, 
genocide looked very different. And about half of the Jews who were murdered in the Holocaust were murdered under these circumstances. Even those who were eventually taken to extermination camps, and about half of the population of Galicia was, was taken to Berzhets, the, the extermination camp uh, on the Polish-Ukrainian border, even they first lived under German occupation for a whole year. When you look at it that way, you realize that genocide is a kind of social event. It's something that everyone is participating in. It's something where the Germans got to know the Jews quite well before they started killing them, because the Jews would come into their homes, with the, they were their doctors, they were their babysitters, they were their cooks, they were their tailors, and so forth. The Germans could not kill the Jews on their own, so they had to have a large number of policemen which they recruited from the area. These policemen knew the Jews as well. They were their neighbors. The Jews themselves had a Judenrat and had a Jewish police, which also participated in organizing them. So all of this becomes a sort of social event, which happens over time, where everyone to one degree or another is participating in, is complicit in, and ultimately, there are those who profit from it and those, of course, who don't. And those who survive, the neighbors, usually profit for the reasons that I mentioned before, because they move into the property of those who were killed, even if they were friends before, even if they were, there was no animosity before. And the question of ideology, which I was very interested in when I was writing my first book a long time ago, Hitler's Army, uh, of ideological motivation plays a much smaller role here. Uh, these few Germans who are there on the ground who kill tens of thousands of Jews, they appear to be mostly motivated by the very fact that they can do, they have orders to do it, but they're also having a fantastically good time. They're really enjoying their period in those beautiful bucolic areas where they have power over life and death. So, it gives you a very different view of what the Holocaust was. And I'll say just one last thing on this, because especially because you mentioned Hilberg, and we sort of think of Hilberg as creating these three categories, right, of victims, perpetrators, and bystanders. In towns like Buchach, there were no bystanders. The whole notion of a bystander makes no sense in, in a neighborhood where genocide occurs. Everyone is participating in one way or another. J'ai ensuite posé à Omer Bartov la question de ses choix d'écriture dans ce chapitre, qui n'est pas chronologique, mais qui passe en revue des expériences individuelles, des portraits, en demandant aussi quel lien il voyait entre son intégration de ses témoignages et celle faite par Saul Friedlander dans sa grande synthèse « L'Allemagne nazie et les Juifs ». Ce premier chapitre sur le génocide n'est pas organisé chronologiquement, mais plutôt comme une sorte de tapestry of portraits of individual cases uh, and experiences and testimonies. And I wondered, how did you choose this way of organizing the material? Did, is it a way to call back perhaps to uh, Saul Friedlander's book and uh, the way that he incorporated voices, contemporary voices of the, the Holocaust as it was happening? Uh, what was the, the choice behind the writing? Yeah, so, you know, that's sort of two questions that are related. One is uh, Freelander's technique, uh, and Freelander was, was my teacher, and, you know, I, I've, uh, I've always admired him, uh, and what I was trying to do, so what I was trying to do, it was very difficult, uh, because I, I had a huge amount of material 
uh, about 250 different testimonies, just Jewish testimonies, plus uh, quite a few Polish and Ukrainian accounts and German court cases with many, many, many uh, eyewitness accounts, about 2,000 pages of that. So I made two strategic decisions, I guess, when I was writing that chapter, uh, The Daily Life of Genocide in particular, uh, which is, as you say, it sort of gives cases. One decision, as you might have seen, I started with the the, the youngest people, actually with babies, with those who didn't even know that they had experienced it. They discovered what happened to them only years later. Uh, and I worked my way through older people and then parents of children. Uh, and that wasn't just a way to organize it. But for me, you know, genocide is, is horrifying as it is. Uh, the killing of children is particularly horrifying. And the fact that there were babies who had somehow survived and had no recollection and only realized that when they were in the 20s or 30s, is is especially striking. Uh, and so I sort of worked my way through that. But the other uh, organizing principle that I had, or the choice that I made really, was that I wanted to also talk about rescue. And I didn't want to talk about rescue in the sense that it, just to write a good, a feel-good story, which obviously my book is not, uh, but rather because... When you write about something so dark and so horrifying about how people can be so um, cruel to each other, uh, it's important to see something else there, I think. For me, it was crucial to be able to see some rays of light here and there. Beyond that, was what was important in talking about rescue was to show, and I think that was maybe the cardinal point, was to show that people had choice. That when we think of genocide, and especially the Holocaust, and as we said, this sort of industrial, huge event that was in some in some ways, who could stop it? It was so big. It was so um, relentless. And yet people made choices. And the choices people made may have been very, very small choices and may have been momentary, but they actually saved people. And the rescue of those people is what enabled us to know what happened, because then if we listen to those people, we know what happened. So it's not only rescuing the people, it's rescuing the memory of the event itself. And so that, for me, was very important. Now, just to touch on on, on Friedlander's technique, Friedlander, in, in many ways, did exactly the opposite of what I did. Friedlander wanted to tell the story of the Holocaust as a whole, I never aspired to do that. Uh, I didn't think that I could. In some ways, I don't think it's possible. But he he did his best doing it. Uh, but in order to not just tell, give the sort of überblick, the view from the top of it, uh, and not to make it appear normalized because of the narrative, he introduced these voices of people. My sense was that when you introduce the voices of people, these voices need to be contextualized. They need to be in the place where they are. And in, when you write a big history, you can't do that. When you write a small history, when you write the history of one place, those people, you know where they come from. You, by then, 
by the time this happens, you know where they grew up, you know what they had internalized. And that gives their voices not just this sort of shocking effect that Freelander wanted to give them, but really just a human effect that they had lived there as normal human beings, and then the world turned upside down. Un des aspects terribles racontés dans le livre est cette sorte de dissonance cognitive chez les Allemands qui commettent des meurtres épouvantables ou qui y assistent et qui continuent à vivre leur vie de famille tranquille en buvant du schnapps ou en jouant aux cartes. Est-ce qu'on peut l'expliquer You said that in Bouchard there there were no bystanders, there could be no bystanders, but uh, there were many Germans, uh, military and especially in the administration of the town, who thought of themselves as bystanders and thought that they did nothing wrong, saw nothing wrong. And your book shows the amazing extent of what we would call cognitive dissonance between what was uh, the, the violence that was committed on a, on a daily horrific basis and uh, people playing cards and drinking schnapps and having parties. And uh, it's something that is well known in Holocaust historiography, but it's always difficult to make sense of this dissonance. Uh, is, did you come to make sense of it after working on this book? Um, I guess, you know, not, not fully, no, no. I, I'm, I'm, I mean, what is, what is interesting to me is that Uh, you can, I mean, in, in writing this book, I, I, I felt that I could, um, or at least I tried, but I felt that I could understand how different individuals thought and how they explained to themselves why they were doing what they were doing. Uh, and nothing, <clears throat> in that sense, nothing appeared extraordinary. That is, things were normalized. Um, genocide was normalized. That's why I call this chapter also the daily life of genocide. It becomes a routine and everyone is playing their role. And in that sense, the people were there were just playing the role that they had and they were trying to make um, the most of it, like most people do. Um, but, you know, if you had a Jewish maid, um, then you'd send it to get you the best milk from the nearby dairy, right? Uh, and then when there is an, an action, when there's a raid, a roundup of Jews, then, um, you know, you know she won't come in that day, right? Uh, maybe she's hiding and maybe she'll never come back because she was killed. Um, and, and that becomes sort of normalized. So on one level, I could understand it. Uh, and I could imagine that it could happen in any place, that there's nothing in that sense extraordinary about it. On the other level, it's completely impossible to understand. It's impossible to understand that a woman is standing at a window and she's seeing people running down the street and being shot on the street. Uh, and she's standing with her child. And she says to her neighbor, how do we protect our children from seeing these things? But these things that they are seeing are being done by their husbands. A woman who, whose son tells her that he came back from school and he saw a corpse on the bridge. And she goes with him and there's a young woman lying there. She'd been lying there since he went to school in the morning, uh, who'd been shot. That kind of normalization of that, um, of being able to live with that and then go home and live for another 20, 30 years with these memories and only come back to them when you're investigated by the police, that's, that's very hard to understand. Uh, so for me, too, there was a kind of dissonance between understanding the normality of it 
and being unable to ultimately fathom it. And I think that's anyone who looks at this kind of violence on that scale realizes. It's not that it's impossible to represent all these things that we were told about the Holocaust. Of course it's possible. You can tell it. And people talked about it. And you can even understand why people did what they did. Because they tell you why they did it. They, you ask them and they tell you. But somehow, after all of that, you are left with an unanswered question. Le livre confirme aussi ce qu'on savait, à quel point ces crimes sont restés presque totalement impunis après la Seconde Guerre mondiale. Speaking of perpetrators and of uh, people coming back to their normal lives, your book also shows, also adds, I should say, to the, to the evidence, the, the ample body of evidence that shows that these crimes were left largely unpunished, that most of the perpetrators went back to their normal lives and uh, were not investigated or were found guilty, but with mitigating circumstances and served short sentences. So this is uh, not a new discovery, of course, but it's uh, striking once you've read a hundred pages on daily killings to see that uh, these were left mostly unpunished. Yeah, so, I mean, one thing is, is clearly the case, and that's not only the case of the Holocaust, that uh, in genocide, most people get away with murder. And genocide is a case where large numbers of people are killed by relatively large numbers of people who are doing the killing. And there's always a question, can you actually punish Uh, all the people who were involved in the genocide without thereby decapitating entirely the society that carried it out. And these were questions that were raised in Germany, of course, after World War II. Um, and the decision was, of course, well, we'll take some representative uh, sample of the perpetrators, well-known people, and the rest, well, we'll see what we can do. And it's, it's a horrifying thought uh, that people could come back, who were policemen before the war, and then were, were mass murderers during the war, and then come back and they still serve as policemen after the war, and they retire as policemen. And only toward the end of their lives, they may suddenly be investigated by the police, and even then, they die before they can even be found guilty. The, the other side of it that I think for me was important and was, of course, curious, and that has to do with the German legal system, is that although there was certainly no justice done by the German legal system, what it did do, uh, as of the late 1950s, is create a vast archive of investigations. Uh, and the German legal system has this investigative judge, so you, you collect a great deal of material even before you decide whether there would be an indictment or not. Uh, and that is an extraordinary archive uh, that has been tapped here and there, but absolutely not sufficiently. The, um, it's, it's filled, like many of these accounts that I have, of civilian wit eyewitnesses, women, workers, wives, um, who were there and who reported to the police as witnesses uh, who enable you to create a social history of that place under genocide that the perpetrators would not give you and the victims cannot give you, that is still in the archive. So that justice system did not do legal justice, but it contributed a great deal to the historical uh, material that can still be used. 
La fin de l'occupation allemande de Bokchak en 1944 ne signifie pas la fin de la violence, d'abord entre groupes nationalistes rivaux, puis en raison des politiques staliniennes quand la région est intégrée à l'URSS. Finally, the, the last chapters of your book show that the end of German occupation is in no way the end of violence in Buchach and that uh, the Soviet takeover of uh, uh, Galicia incorporated into uh, uh, Soviet Ukraine uh, leads to ethnic cleansing, leads to uh, further deportations. So uh, this is in no way, uh, uh, of course, a happy ending for uh, uh, the region because it's been incorporated in the USSR with the, the violent policies of Stalin. Yeah, well, in fact, um, you know, the, the, the vast majority of the Jewish population is killed by summer 1943, uh, with the, the so-called Judenrein, uh, in Galicia. Now, there are still thousands of Jews who are there in labor camps and in hiding, uh, but the vast majority have been killed. In early 1944, that is before the Soviets arrive, Uh, Ukrainian uh, nationalist units, armed units, begin a campaign of ethnic cleansing of the Polish population of that area. Many of those Ukrainian uh, members of these paramilitary units had previously served in the German police as auxiliary police. So they were involved in the killing of Jews. And then they, they, they leave, they, they, they desert from these German units and they form their own nationalist units, and they begin the second phase of creating a Jew and Pole-free Ukraine. And so the violence against Poles begins still under German rule. The Germans are not interested in that. That's not part of their program. They're not interested in who stays there, Poles or Ukrainians. And that continues after the Soviets arrive. Only when the Soviets arrive, for them, these Ukrainians are insurgents. And so they recruit whatever Poles are left in the area and the few Jews who are left there to now organize an anti-insurgency campaign against Ukrainian insurgents. That kind of violence, which is not against the Jews, but between Ukrainians and Poles and then the Soviets, continues to some extent uh, well into the second part of the 1940s. And by the end of that, the area has been completely cleansed, so to speak, of Jews and of Poles. And it becomes purely Ukrainian, but under Soviet rule. In the long run, what is ironic in all this is that for Ukrainian nationalism that always wanted a Pole-free and Jew-free Ukraine, but of course didn't want to be under Soviet rule, the Nazis, along with the Soviets, helped Ukrainian nationalism create what ultimately appears in 1991 with Ukrainian independence, uh, a West Ukraine that has none of its very large and prosperous and important Polish population and none of its Jewish population. It's, pu it's purely Ukrainian. Une avant-dernière question qui porte sur les traces très minimes de ces événements à Bokshak et dans la région aujourd'hui. Purely Ukrainian and today uh, very uh, devoid of traces of this history. You've shown it in a previous book, Erased, and also in this book you've been, of course, to, to Buchach. And uh, you say that there are very few traces of these events today. Yes, uh, there are very few. There's some, I mean, I must say that, uh, you know, since I wrote uh, Erased in 2007, uh, there have been attempts by especially young people in West Ukraine, young Ukrainians, young historians, Uh, to do something about this. And some uh, Jewish and Israeli um, uh, groups uh, that come there, for instance, the 
cemetery of Buchach has finally been surrounded by a wall only in the last last couple of years. Uh, that's, of course, money and, and that came from outside, not from the community or the local government. Uh, so there are attempts, but by and large, uh, the memory of the Jewish populations there, of the culture, has um, has not come back. And it'll take a long time to revive that. Pour finir, j'ai demandé à Omer Bartov quelle était sa réaction à la traduction en français de ce livre, le deuxième traduit après l'Armée d'Hitler. Finally, your book has been uh, translated in French. Very good translation by Marc Olivier Berrer. Uh, is it significant for you to have this uh, this book coming out in France today? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, um, first of all, I was I was very glad that you know uh, that I was approached, and uh, I, I of course met uh, Marc Olivier. I didn't meet. Uh, my publisher, because I haven't been able to come to France. I wish I could. Um, you know, I'm a great admirer of French historiography, literature, and especially this sort of, I think what is special for France is that there's an intellectual interest in history, not only, so history is not only part of an sort of historical debate, but also of a larger intellectual debate. And so for me to have the book out in French is, uh, is uh, one of the best things that could happen to it. Um, I was very happy for it to come out in Polish for obvious reasons. And I'm very happy that it's coming out in German for obvious reasons. And I was very happy that it came out in Hebrew. Uh, as you know, I come from Israel. And uh, so that's my first language. But also because it means uh, a great deal to people who live there. Uh, but France... Um, As a, as an intellectual civilization, I'm certainly very delighted to have the book come out in French. Well, we are very uh, delighted to be able to receive it and to, to read it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Merci de nous avoir écoutés. Rendez-vous sur le site www.parolesdhistoire.fr pour toutes les informations sur le podcast, pour vous abonner, écouter ou télécharger les autres émissions. La discussion se poursuit aussi en ligne, notamment sur Twitter. Vous pouvez poser des questions à paroledist. Et à bientôt pour un prochain épisode. Mmh.